Welcome to another episode of Electrify This, a podcast focused on the movement to electrify everything as a key strategy to decarbonize and revitalize all sectors of our economy. Each month, I connect with experts to explore the policy and market issues underpinning the shift to electrify transportation, buildings, and industry. I'm your host, Sarah Baldwin, Director of Electrification Policy with Energy Innovation. Today's episode, Accelerating Clean Electrified Transportation by 2035, Part 1. April has been a big month on clean energy, climate, and electrification fronts. The Biden administration unveiled the American Jobs Plan, a $2 trillion plan to modernize U.S. infrastructure, build an equitable clean energy economy, and stimulate recovery. During Earth Week, the Biden administration convened a virtual leaders' summit on climate with international government leaders, Focused on coordination to address the climate crisis, and at that summit, the president announced the U.S. climate goal to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by 50 percent below 2005 levels by the year 2030. Recognizing the important contribution that the transportation sector will make to getting to those emission cuts, the U.S. Department of Transportation, Department of Energy, and General Services Administration announced new actions to accelerate deployment of EVs and EV chargers, including new grant programs, research funding, and EV charging corridor development, among many other things. And adding to the excitement of a very busy month, two landmark transportation electrification reports hit the streets called the 2035 2.0 Report Series, released by a team from the University of California, Berkeley, Grid Lab, and Energy Innovation. Now, I had the pleasure of working with this team on the two reports, and I'm excited to dig into them today. The first, titled 2035 Report 2.0, Plummeting Costs and Dramatic Improvements in Batteries Can Accelerate Our Clean Transportation Future, shows that achieving 100% EV sales by 2035 would bring widespread benefits to consumers, the economy, and the climate. The second report, Accelerating Clean Electrified Transportation by 2035, Policy Priorities, was the companion report led by Energy Innovation, and it provides targeted policy recommendations for federal, state, and local governments to enable a, a rapid transition to EVs nationwide. So, Knowing there's a lot to unpack within both of these reports, I'm going to be doing a a three-part series, today being part one on transportation electrification. And today, to talk with me about the first report, the 2035 2.0 report, I'm joined by two esteemed colleagues and co-authors. First, we have Dr. Nikit Abiyankar, Senior Scientist at the Center for Environmental Public Policy at the University of California, Berkeley, and a scientist with the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. Dr. Abiyankar regularly advises national and state governments, regulators, and utilities across multiple countries on designing clean energy policies and programs. Dr. Abiyankar has conducted extensive research and policy analysis on renewable energy, energy efficiency, electric vehicles, and energy access. He holds a PhD in environment and resources from Stanford University. Welcome, Dr. Abiyankar. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's great to be here, and thank you so much for, for, for having me. Well, I'm excited to have you on the show. And I'm also joined today by uh, Taylor McNair, the program manager at GridLab, where he's responsible for the coordination, management, and execution of GridLab's technical projects. Taylor works with GridLab's team of experts to provide comprehensive technical grid expertise to policymakers and advocates. And prior to GridLab, Taylor worked at Bright Power, a leading provider of energy management services throughout the U.S., Taylor graduated from Emory University and had a double major in environmental sciences and business. Welcome, Taylor. Hi, Sarah. Happy to be here. Awesome. Well, I am thrilled to have you both on this show. And this is the first time I've really been deeply involved in what we're going to talk about in terms of the research and the reports. So, um, you know, this is definitely a fun experience for me. But I honestly stand to benefit a lot from having this conversation, even though we were all involved in this uh, very large, comprehensive effort to get these reports out the door. But you all have been doing this work uh, prior to to this project and have kind of a background story to, to convey for listeners. So I'm going to ask you to start with um, telling me a little bit about the motivation for the 
report, the 2035 2.0 report, the background behind the 2035 report series. And Nick, I will maybe maybe start with you. Sure. Thank you. So transportation sector is the largest greenhouse gas emission source uh, from the from from the US. So whenever you think of doing any kind of climate related climate mitigation related uh, action in the US, transportation sector has to be at the front and center of it. And within the transportation sector, while aviation and shipping is, is important, but bulk of the transportation sector greenhouse gas emissions come from the passenger cars and freight trucks, either medium duty, heavy duty, uh, and so on. So this vehicle electrification is generally considered as one of the primary mitigation uh, options in the transportation sector. There are several other technologies, hydrogen, fuel cell, and so on and so forth. But so far, what has really reached the commercial scale and feasibility is uh, this electric vehicles. So we started looking closely, and we have been following what is going on in the battery space, battery technology uh, development, and so on and so forth. And something dramatic has really happened in the battery space over the last three to four years. So there are three things that have really changed, uh, uh, and that changes the outlook for electric vehicles completely. Number one is uh, the dramatic decline in the battery prices, which was completely unanticipated even just a few years ago. So I'm sure many of your listeners have uh, g- g- have seen reports on how rapidly battery prices have fallen. But just in the last five years, uh, the lithium-ion battery prices have fallen by 60 to 70 percent uh, uh, just in the last five years. And this is a huge deal. The second thing that has changed is in addition to the rapid cost drop, the battery performance has been improving pretty rapidly. So in terms of energy density, specific energy, whether the batteries can be charged fast, uh, can you charge your car, for example, uh, uh, instead of waiting for four to five four to five hours, can you charge your car in like 15 to 30 minutes? Uh, and that is game-changing, and we are really reaching that frontier uh, uh, with, with the batteries. Uh, so that really makes longer-range electric vehicles, fast-charging electric vehicles, uh, much lighter electric vehicles a real possibility now. And the third thing that has changed in the battery space is just the scale uh, at which that industry has grown, which has resulted in massive expansion potential. And that has also resulted in several automakers and, uh, and, and, and auto OEMs announcing their own goals and targets. For example, GM uh, announced that they will not sell any gasoline or diesel car uh, after 2035. Similarly, Volvo made a similar announcement. Several countries or states within the U.S., California, Massachusetts, now Washington, U.K., Sweden, Norway, uh, there has been significant push towards uh, towards EVs. And that's why we wanted to look at electric vehicles or transport electrification in general uh, more closely. Uh, uh, and when we started unraveling things, uh, we got pleasantly surprised after the other, and I'll be happy to talk about those details. Uh, but this dramatic recent improvements, which were completely unanticipated just a few years ago, uh, that really motivated us to do the study. And I'll end this by saying all the experts were wrong about how dramatic the changes in batteries are going to be, and that includes us. Even we had not anticipated that this would happen just a few years ago. That's great. Yeah, very exciting stuff happening in the technology space. And uh, just to give some additional context, Taylor, you were involved in what was called the, you know, kind of the first 2035 report, which looked at uh, high penetrations of renewables and and a clean grid. Can you give us a little bit of that background? Because that was kind of the lead-in to the 2035 2.0 series. Yeah, definitely. Um, Exactly, Sarah. So, you know, about a year ago, we released the original um, or sort of 1.0 version, which was the 2035 report, uh, which was focused on the electricity sector. So in that report, we detailed how the U.S. can achieve uh, 
90% clean electricity generation uh, by the year 2035. Um, and, you know, the impetus for that report was really, um, you know, very similar for as to what Nick had just described. Um, you know, a few months prior to the release of that report, uh, Nick and his colleagues came to us at GridLab and, and you all at Energy Innovation and said, you know, they took a look at the sort of scope of decarbonization studies that were out there in the world. Um, and they took a look at sort of the price of wind and solar and the cost projections. And they said that um, people are really underestimating, you know, many experts are underestimating just just how quickly the cost of new renewable resources are falling. Um, and with that, they sort of predicted that we could move a lot faster on decarbonization in the power sector. Um, so that was really the impetus for the original 2035 report. Um, and in that report, we, we sort of analyzed the impacts um, of moving to 90% clean generation by 2035 and sort of the associated um, cost benefits and cost savings that, that would come with such a goal um, and really what kind of scale up is necessary. Now, looking forward to, to report 2.0, sort of the, the glaring omission from, from the original 2035 report is that we didn't consider electrification. So we didn't look at um, what would happen, you know, in other sectors as the power sector decarbonizes. Um, so, you know, fast forward to, to 2.0, um, you know, we had such a fun time and such a fantastic team doing, doing the original report um, that we sort of got the gang back together and said, well, now that we've tackled the power sector, which is really sort of the linchpin of decarbon, you know, of economy-wide decarbonization, um, where do we have to look next? And as Nick had mentioned, you know, transportation is, is the largest contributor of greenhouse gas emissions um, in the United States. So sort of the logical next step was, you know, now that the grid is decarbonizing or, or we've detailed that the grid can decarbonize rapidly, um, how do we sort of take the next sector of the next major sector of greenhouse gas emissions and begin to decarbonize that? Um, and the result of that is 2035 report two, report 2.0, which, as Nick had mentioned, takes a look at sort of the cost implications and really what's necessary to um, to scale up electrification in transport as we're decarbonizing the power sector at the same time. Great. So you're effectively, with both reports, 2035, looking at a, a highly decarbonized 90% clean grid by 2035, and then layering on with the 2.0 series that clean grid with a highly electrified transportation future, and both of which occurring on similar timelines, which really are the pieces we need to be working towards aggressively if we're going to meet uh, our climate goals, our greenhouse gas emission reduction goals, and also um, for a lot of other reasons, uh, you know, moving towards effectively the the clean energy future that we've been talking about for quite some time now. This is really what it comes down to. <laughs> so it's exciting. Um, I'm, I sort of started to answer my own question, but I want to put the question to you all. So why do you feel this report, the 2035 2.0 Transportation Electrification with a Clean Grid, is so timely? Why is now the right time to start pushing for more ambitious transportation electrification and grid decarbonization? Nikit? Sure. So I will give you three reasons. Uh, reason number one is, uh, as I mentioned, just because of the technological improvements we are now at a time, uh, and truly a historic time, when the case for transport electrification is stronger than ever before. And uh, we are also at a time where the uh, reduction of greenhouse gas emissions, avoiding the local air pollution due to diesel trucks, uh, which, by the way, uh, affects the frontline communities and communities of color and low-income communities disproportionately high. I'm happy to talk about that later. Uh, uh, but but you are essentially at a at, at a point in time where you can reduce the emissions, avoid the harmful impacts of local air pollution, without sacrificing any economic welfare. In fact, creating large savings for consumers while you uh, you achieve these environmental benefits. That's number one. Number two, uh, uh, the same story on the grid side. So th we are also at a historic time when we can clean up the grid 
without increasing consumer costs or potentially uh, retail rates uh, and definitely not increasing the wholesale uh, electricity prices. And third, we're also at a point where there is political ambition and uh, uh, the administration is not shy uh, in taking bold actions and really uh, lead us into a brighter uh, climate future. Great. All great reasons. Taylor, what about you? Why do you feel this this report is so timely? Yeah, I think Nick had, you know, hit on some of the most important factors. I mean, the, the first of which I will just reiterate, you know, transportation pollution is a, is a particularly daunting environmental justice issue. Um, and we recognized, you know, in this analysis that, um, you know, that beginning to electrify transportation, particularly medium and heavy duty vehicles, um, has the has the opportunity of of sort of really dramatically reducing um, health and environmental burdens for many frontline communities. Um, and I think you know we're in a moment, you know, particularly in the in the climate space, where prioritizing those types of impacts is is most important. Um, and I think, and I, and I think that's one reason why this, why this analysis and why the report as a whole is, is particularly timely. But the, the sort of, the second thing I'll say, um, is just that, you know, I think that the, the climate space and, and really lots of, lots of sort of mainstream people who follow this recognize that we are, you know, we really understand um, how we need to begin decarbonizing the economy and and where and sort of what the what the initial steps we need to take are um, and sort of one is as we articulated beginning to decarbonize the grid um, and I think folks have coalesced around this idea of the clean electricity standard that we highlighted in the original 2035 report um, and then number two moving to sort of electrify all our other sectors and I think the report is so timely because, um, you know, we've begun to reframe this, this challenge as really a great opportunity. And one really important thing that we highlight in 2035 Report 2.0 is that transportation electrification is a fantastic opportunity, while at the same time um, tackling a really significant share of greenhouse gas emissions. So as sort of, um, you know, mainstream experts, um, as well as uh, kind of everyday folks who follow this issue and our sort of core policymakers, both at the state and federal level, begin to tackle climate change seriously, um, begin to put serious money behind um, lots of these conversations and sort of really serious policy proposals. Um, I think this report provides a really critical blueprint to articulating how we get transportation electrification done um, you know, cost-effectively, strategically, equitably, um, in order to align with our national climate goals. Mm -hmm. Great. And yeah, you've both brought up a really important point. And actually, I think just this month, uh, the American Lung Association released their State of the Air 2021 report. And they found that despite the fact that we've made some progress on cleaning up the air, more than 40% of Americans, or over 30, 135 million people, live in places with unhealthy levels of ozone or particle pollution. And in particular, and very stark, is that people of color are over three times more likely to be breathing the most polluted air as compared to uh, their white counterparts. So that's a, you know, we are, we're definitely touching on a, a touchy subject for a lot of folks, but you know, with COVID, I think public health has become front and center, and we really are keen as a country to start to figure out what the real solutions are. So this, I think, is a is a great contribution to that conversation. Uh, I want to dig in more on the contents of the report findings. Uh, you guys spent a lot of time running very sophisticated models and crunching numbers and developing graphs and charts to articulate some, some very clear points and findings. And... Um, I want to talk about those. So um, can you put in context what it means to get to a 90% clean grid in 2035 and achieve 100% new sales by of EVs by 2030 slash 2035 in terms of the various report findings that you came up with? Nick, I'll start with you. Sure. Uh, so uh, 
I have to start by saying that this is uh, uh, this is challenging. So uh, <laughs> I, I'm in no way <laughs> I I am you know kind of uh, uh, I'm, I'm reducing this problem to an easy problem. This is definitely challenging. Uh, but what we are arguing is this is achievable. And here are some numbers. So today we sell about 300,000 all-electric vehicles in the U.S., which is approximately 2% of the total passenger car uh, sales in the U.S. We need to increase this number just in the next 10 years from 300,000 a year to close to 14 to 15 million vehicles uh, sold per year. Uh, so this is a big scale-up, uh, definitely challenging, uh, but given that many auto manufacturers are already scaling up and flexing their muscle to uh, to get on this uh, to to get on the wheels, <laughs> pun intended, uh, we we do feel that this is this is possible. On the grid side, uh, a similar challenging uh, infrastructure scale up will be required. So today our kind of share of clean electricity, which includes all the renewables, uh, solar, wind, hydro, geothermal, biomass, uh, combined with uh, nuclear, uh, covers approximately 35 to 40% of total uh, electricity generation in a year. We need to take that from about 40% now, so 35 to 40% now, to nearly 90% by 2035. So, and at the same time, meet the additional electricity demand that all this car and truck charging is going to put on the grid. So again, a huge infrastructure scale-up. We need to add about 120 gigawatts of new wind and solar and battery storage capacity onto the grid. And just to give you a scale of things, last year we added approximately 35 gigawatts of new wind and solar capacity onto the grid. We need to scale that up from 35 gigawatts a year to approximately 120 gigawatts a year. Huge scale up, but not internationally unprecedented. So China has already uh, installed 120 gigawatts of wind and solar capacity in the year 2020. So if you really are serious about decarbonizing the economy, then we have to take up these challenges. Having said that, and Sarah, I mean, you know this better than anybody, mm -hmm. this is not going to happen on its own. Uh, uh, otherwise, this would have already happened. Uh, the, the customers face significant barriers. There are significant barriers the utility companies face, and there are significant challenges on the grid side, charging infrastructure, and so on and so forth. So this all needs a significant policy and regulatory support. Uh, and obviously, I will shut up talking about that because I'm talking with Sarah. <laughs> no, that's great. That's really helpful. Um, yeah, those numbers are huge, but as you say, not unprecedented. And we've done big things before. Heck, we just put a gizmo on the on Mars, and it's still up there doing cool stuff. So you know, we have the capability to do big stuff. Um, Taylor, what else would you add? Um, we've got a lot more to dig into in terms of the key findings of the report, but anything to contribute to what Nikit just said? Uh, yeah, just a, just a few more. I think Nikit just highlighted sort of the most significant um, kind of infrastructure, you know, big infrastructure changes that that um, will hit. There's sort of two two other numbers underlying some of what Nikit mentioned, and that's um, you know, how much the electric grid is going to expand to accommodate all these new vehicles. So, so we estimate that um, demand will grow about 2% per year, um, which is, uh, you know, not, not an incredibly daunting number. Um, electric demand growth has been relatively flat um, the past few years and sort of prior to our peak when the, when the power sector really peaked in emissions and growth. Um, we were doing that sort of in the late 70s and 80s as we were expanding the economy and expanding the electric grid. Um, so, so, you know, 2% um, growth is, is not crazy, but it obviously will demand um, really significant new renewables. And, and then the, you know, sort of accompanying that, um, that stat is just the amount of new charging infrastructure um, that will be necessary to uh, achieve that level of electric vehicle growth. And I'll, I'll hold off on that number um, when we 
discuss key findings. Um, but, but we find that it, it really, you know, it demands an aggressive build out of charging infrastructure. Um, but it is certainly not, you know, not unprecedented in terms of, um, internationally what, what has been done or what's possible. Um, and just historically, you know, what's, what's possible for us to build. Great. Yeah. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, that 2% figure also encompasses electrification of buildings and industry at, uh, I think, pretty high levels as well in, in combination with transportation. So that's kind of the whole economy effectively moving to electric and being powered by a, a clean grid. Is that correct? That's right. Great. As you know, that's one of my favorite topics. <laughs> Um, well, let's dive into the key findings from the report. So if we get a 90% clean grid supporting 100% new sales of uh, vehicles being EVs by 2030 for passenger cars and 2035 for medium and heavy duty cars, what happens? What, what results have you uncovered with your research and modeling? Nikit? Sure. Uh, so the first thing that really happens is large consumer savings. So the EVs, uh, the, the currently most of the electric vehicles are more expensive than gasoline or diesel uh, counterparts. Uh, but their, their maintenance and operation uh, costs are far lower than gasoline and, and diesel cars. And what we are expecting is over the next four to five years, uh, uh, EVs are going to achieve what we call as the upfront price parity with the gasoline and diesel vehicles, at least in the passenger car segment. For heavy-duty and medium-duty trucks and other vehicles, uh, this upfront price parity point may achieve, uh, may happen some, somewhat later. But the point is, even if EVs are more expensive on an upfront cost basis, uh, their lifetime cost, when measured on a per-mile basis, they're already cheaper than gasoline or diesel vehicles. And that results in significant consumer savings uh, in terms of transportation costs. So transportation cost is one of the, one of the largest expenses for most households. Uh, and, 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 and with these kinds of savings, what we are estimating is consumers save nearly $2.7 trillion between 2020 and 2050 if we move on this aggressive uh, vehicle electrification pathway. And just to give you a scale of things and how large this 2.7 trillion number is, this is about 100 to $200 billion of savings every year for the next 30 years, equivalent to an average household saving of $1,000 every household every year for the next 25 to 30 years. And this is not counting for any of the environmental benefit that EVs could bring in. If you count that in, then the savings uh, even increase uh, by, by nearly 50% or so. Which brings me to my second point, is the large environmental benefit that this, uh, that, uh, that, that this EV revolution can bring in. So coupled with grid decarbonization, uh, uh, this electric vehicles can reduce the total greenhouse gas emissions from the ground transportation uh, sector by nearly 60% by 2035 and more than 90% by 2050. So it nearly eliminates the greenhouse gas emissions, particularly CO2 emissions from the ground transportation sector. And what is equally important if not more, is it results in significant reduction in local air pollution, particularly because you're switching uh, diesel trucks with electric trucks. So diesel trucks are the largest contributors to uh, the local air pollution. And as we had already discussed, it disproportionately affects uh, the communities of color, low-income communities, frontline communities, and so on. So it's a huge environmental justice issue. So because of this, reduction in local air pollution, uh, what we expect is this could in total avoid nearly 150,000 uh, total premature deaths that happen because of local air pollution between now and 2050. So every year, nearly 18 to 20,000 Americans die prematurely because of vehicular air pollution. And most of it can be avoided 
uh, if we switch to EVs, and most of it will be avoided by 2040. Uh, by to 2050, and this results in significant, uh, significant benefits. And the third uh, major finding is, I think Taylor touched upon that, is what happens to the grid. So the common question that gets asked is, is the grid capable of handling uh, uh, this additional demand? Because these cars and trucks are going to be charged. Uh, uh, we saw what happens in California every wildfire season. We saw what happened in Texas. So is the grid capable of handling this additional demand? And the short answer is yes. So we did pretty comprehensive and detailed grid simulations. So we simulated the hour-by-hour uh, hour operation of the grid across seven weather years. So we uh, simulated operation of each and every power plant within the country and all the major transmission lines in the country for nearly 60,000 hours. Uh, uh, and we also included this additional demand, not only because of vehicle electrification, but also because of buildings and industrial electrification and saw how the system uh, behaves. And what we found is that the grid does run dependably with no problem, even with 90% clean uh, 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 clean electricity powering the grid. And it also doesn't uh, uh, increase the wholesale electricity prices, which is also pretty consistent with the finding that we had with our original 2035 1.0 uh, report. Naturally, this requires significant battery storage investments. Uh, this also requires significant investments in the charging infrastructure, some investments in the distribution system upgrades, and so on and so forth. Uh, but these charging infrastructure investments, uh, they're challenging. The distribution system uh, upgrade investments, they're challenging, but not historically unprecedented. So what we find is, and I think uh, Taylor can talk a bit more on that, is uh, we need about $10 billion to build new charging infrastructure and upgrades to the existing distribution infrastructure every year that need to be invested. Uh, which is a large number, but utilities have already been investing about $30 billion every year in distribution system upgrades anyway. So this increase seems to be modest. So, and fourth important finding is about jobs. Uh, so because we're talking about manufacturing significant EVs, manufacturing of batteries, significant infrastructure build out, what we find is uh, accelerating EV sales and grid decarbonization together results in nearly 2 million additional jobs in 2035, which is a big number. And uh, th there, is, there is a pretty valid concern that EVs uh, need less maintenance, less oil changes, and so on. So that's why there could be a reduction in the auto repair jobs. But what is interesting to note is even if we go on an aggressive sales trajectory for EVs, that doesn't make the gas and diesel cars vanish from the roads overnight. We still see significant amount of significant number of gas and diesel cars uh, on the roads in well into the late 2030s. Uh, so there could be there could be uh, some time for smoother transition. That's number one. And number two, the gains in other sectors uh, are way more uh, than the potential job losses in the uh, in the in the auto repair sector. And an interesting side finding on the uh, on the jobs piece is in addition to these direct and indirect jobs that get created in building infrastructure and producing vehicles and so on, because of consumer savings, there is a huge increase in induced jobs, meaning that consumers save $1,000 a year. Uh, they basically are going to take that money and spend it on something else that creates additional economic activity and creates additional jobs. Uh, so a large share of the new jobs that get created was also uh, what we found because of these induced uh, jobs. So let me pause here and uh, and happy to discuss more later. <laughs> That's great and really great concise recap of a very dense uh, report that took a lot of modeling and uh, 
complex algorithms, I'm sure, to, to get through all those simulations. Um, you touched on one thing, and I want to dig in a little bit, bit on that because it was a, a corollary investigation as part of this. GridLab worked with E3 to do a, a deeper exploration of the impacts on the distribution system and the distribution grid, knowing we're going to see a lot of electric vehicles and chargers um, on the distribution side versus the the bulk side. Um, and they, you know, we all collectively wanted to learn more as to what that would uh, do to the distribution grid and, and or potentially what sort of impacts that might have on ratepayers writ large. So Taylor, I know you didn't author this the side study, but if you can maybe impart some of the key findings that E3 uncovered as part of that. Yeah, thanks Sarah. Um and exactly, you're you know, you're exactly right in that millions of new electric vehicles plugging into the into the electric grid will obviously impact, you know, how much wind and solar and transmission will need, but that also has an impact on the local distribution system. So um, really the sort of uh, little lines that are running through neighborhoods and connecting to houses. Um, this, this is an interesting subject because conventional wisdom really suggests that uh, this might be a major hurdle for transportation electrification um, and really economy-wide electrification. So there's lots of experts out there that suggest that, you know, the distribution grid maybe won't be able to handle all this new load or, or it'll be really expensive to make all these upgrades. And what we found is that that's not necessarily true. Um, so as you mentioned, we hired um, a local consulting firm, E3, to, to conduct a sort of novel assessment of what those costs are to upgrade the distribution system. And, you know, this is, this is relatively untouched waters. It's a, it's a pretty... Um, new area of research and there's not a ton of information out there. So we asked E3 to use, you know, a wide range of estimates and approaches for calculating this. Um, so in the full report, which you can find in the appendix that should be online shortly, um, you can find it on 2035report.com, you know, in the coming days. Um, we, you know, we calculated that in 2050 for our drive clean scenario, which which details 100% electric vehicles, um, electric vehicle sales by 2035, we find that the cumulative cost of distribution system investments could range anywhere from 28 billion to 200 billion. So a really wide range, um, you know, on an annual basis, that's a, that could be $2 billion to $20 billion um, of upgrades per year. So those numbers sound a little daunting, but you, you know, we need to remember that this is this is on the scale of what our utilities companies, you know, usually invest and usually spend on capital investment projects. Um, and as Nick had mentioned, that's that's sort of a tiny portion of sort of the 30 billion or so, um, you know, in 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 capital investment upgrades that utilities typically make. Um, so the the next important criteria of okay, what does you know, two to $20 billion per year mean, um, what we wanted to look at is, is what does that actually mean for ratepayers? So how will that impact your actual electric bill? And what we find is that while all of these new, v, new EVs add, you know, large total system costs for utilities, the actual impact on bills is, is quite low because we're adding so much additional electric load that it actually puts a downward pressure on rates. Um, so this is a concept known as, you know, basically known as throughput in the industry, which basically says, um, you know, you're selling more kilowatt hours, so you can you can spread that total investment over over many more kilowatt hours. Um, that actually decreases rates, and what we find is that this additional sort of twenty billion dollar annual investment um, actually might decrease rate electric rates by about five percent. Um, so that's sort of the, the crux of the analysis that E3 completed for us. Um, one really important caveat to, to, this, um, to this research is that we don't consider any sort of managed or smart charging or time of use rates or flexible rates, um, which is a really conservative assessment for us to make, um, simply considering kind of the amount of investment and research and rulemaking going around 
um, you know, around the country on this topic. You know, there's many utilities that have implemented time of use rates for electric vehicle charging, um, and and are are similarly similarly researching sort of how managed or smart charging might um, might reduce the the cost of this electrification transition. So, you know, we think that if we can actually move more of our charging off of sort of the peak load period, those costs will 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 be even lower for ratepayers. Great. Those are excellent findings, and I'm really pleased that uh, E3 was able to do that parallel investigation. I think having that insight into the impacts on the distri- distribution system is uh really important as we continue this conversation, and I hope it jumpstarts continued research and analysis on that topic. Um, And, you know, there's a lot to unpack with all of this, um, but we are, as I mentioned, going to do a a three-part series, and the next uh, segment is going to focus more on these policy and regulatory levers to accomplish some of these goals and uh, get us to this more uh, aggressive and accelerated electrification and clean grid future. So stay tuned. You're not going to miss out on this great conversation. Um, we'll, we'll cover it next time. Um, I think, you know, I want to, I want to pivot to something that you both touched on quite a bit. And this does, you know, admittedly touch more on the, uh, kind of the policy side of things, but I'm just curious as you guys were doing this research and thinking through the potential to really, address these environmental injustices and the adverse impacts on frontline communities that may not have access to new cars and new EVs, but are certainly impacted by the pollution from cars and trucks. How can we ensure this transition to an accelerated electrified future doesn't leave these communities, these people out and or place greater burdens on them? And I'll let either of you jump in, whoever would like to go first. Let me quickly try and answer that, and Taylor, please uh, feel free to add or jump in. So as I see it, uh, uh, there are multiple ways in which EVs actually enable uh, a more just kind of transition. First, we've already talked about is just the reduction in the local air pollution and the health damages um, because of the local uh, air pollution. The second, with the right set of incentives and and other policies, uh, given the cost to own and operate an electric vehicle is falling very rapidly. Uh, uh, With the right set of incentives and other policies, uh, this also makes some of the lower income communities, particularly the ones that may not afford a car or do not have a car right now, uh, at least makes owning and operating an EV uh, a possibility purely because of the economic grounds. And third, uh, uh, g- g- with the right set of charging infrastructure investments, particularly public charging infrastructure investments, uh, uh, g- g- there is this huge opportunity for also accelerating the transition and also making it more just. For example, when we assessed how much charging infrastructure would be needed and where should all be cited, uh, we we used a multi-pronged approach, meaning that uh, uh, we used multi-criteria, uh, uh, multiple criteria uh, to cite the charging infrastructure. So nearly 30% of the Americans uh, live in rented households. Uh, uh, nearly... Uh, Fifteen percent of the fifteen percent of Americans live in multi-dwelling households. Uh, so you really need to prioritize building charging infrastructure in such areas, plus areas with lower uh, lower incomes, uh, uh, with kind of harder uh, to harder to harder to penetrate in terms of EVs and so on and so forth. So you you create that enabling framework which. Uh, 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 which will then uh, help uh, the frontline communities to transition better and transition in a just manner. Great. Thanks. Taylor, what would you add to that? Uh, yeah, so a, a couple things to add there. Um, you know, the, the first and sort of most important point is that there's there's a ton of work that needs to be done to ensure that 
frontline communities that low inc that low income folks can can directly access these benefits. So that means, you know, improving incentives and and rebates and installing equitable charging infrastructures so that um, you know, folks can can afford to purchase electric vehicles. That's that's sort of first and foremost. And and Sarah, I know you did a ton of work on this and and I'm sure you can speak speak to it better than anyone, um, just in terms of some of the recommendations in your in your policy report. But what I would add additionally is that um, many of these benefits actually accrue whether you own an electric vehicle or not. Um, you know, many um, many frontline communities are, are are characterized as such due to their proximity to kind of heavily trafficked air areas, highways, ports, and so reducing pollution from vehicles provides immediate benefits um, to those communities. So. Um, Nikhil and his team, you know, somehow in the midst of all this, uh, r- released a report focused just on on heavy duty trucks. Um, and one important stat that they cite is that heavy, you know, heavy duty trucks constitute only five percent of on road vehicles, but are responsible for thirty six percent of particulate emissions. So just beginning to electrify um, that kind of small percentage of trucks provides really dramatic benefits um, in terms of in terms of local air pollution impacts. Um, and many of those benefits accrue directly to sort of frontline communities that are often, you know, have often been redlined, you know, by highways or sort of other big infrastructure projects. Um, so I think, I, I think it's really important to consider that, you know, electrifying um, vehicles has, you know, begins to reap immediate local air pollution benefits. But we need to do a lot more work to ensure that those communities can directly access those benefits through um, vehicle purchasing or or leasing. Great. Yeah, all excellent points. And yes, I'm glad you mentioned the truck report as it did come out midstream as we were working on this other one and uh, a lot of great findings in that as well. And I think a lot of folks, myself included, even just a couple years ago, thought, wow, there's really no good option out there for electrifying or you know, switching these large semi-trucks and other freight trucks to a non-gas and oil or diesel uh, dynamic. But really within the last few years, we've seen, as you said, Nick, it, huge transformations within the technology, uh, new models in development, new announcements coming out, and a lot of excitement around the potential to shift our heavy-duty trucks to a cleaner uh, option that, frankly, is going to also save the trucking industry and truck drivers money because it, they don't have to spend all that um, money on fuel. So, you know, we're, we're still a ways out from that becoming mainstream, but I think there's uh, certainly cause to think that's right around the corner. No, I was just going to add one small point uh, on, on, on the truck electrification side. So contrary to the conventional wisdom, which says that truck electrification is very hard, trucks are harder to decarbonize and so on and so forth. What we found is trucks, I mean, especially heavy-duty trucks, actually have a stronger economic and environmental case for electrification than passenger cars. And one of the main reasons is they drive a lot more, like five or six times more than a regular passenger car. Uh, and so that's why they have a very strong economic case as well, in addition to the environmental case for electrification. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We've got to get that charging infrastructure built quickly so they have confidence that they can do what they need to do on the schedules they keep. Um, but yeah, I think, um, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, the Department of Transportation, Department of Energy, and General Services Administration um, just announced some very exciting transportation-related initiatives geared specifically towards infrastructure deployment and getting transportation corridors expanded across the country. So I expect there will be more to discuss on those fronts uh, over the next years as that uh, all plays out. Uh, gentlemen, this has been a great conversation. We're winding down on time, and I want to be respectful of, of your time today. We'll end with one question for you both. Um, what would be your top takeaway for those listening and those interested in jumpstarting the American EV market revolution um, and getting it moving forward more quickly in the coming decade? Taylor, I'll start with you. 
Sure. Uh, thanks, Sarah. Great question. Um, I guess, so I have two takeaways. Um, the first focus on transportation is just that it's really important to remember, um, you know, that when you're purchasing a vehicle, uh, upfront cost matters a lot, um, but it's not the only consideration. And sort of what this research details is that um, a far better investment you can make is actually moving to an electric vehicle because it'll be far cheaper to own and operate over the lifetime that you own that vehicle. Um, obviously, not everyone has sort of the, the prerogative or the means to, you know, to purchase a new vehicle, um, and we need to make it easier uh, to, for this transition to happen. Um, but my second finding is focused on the power sector um, because I'm a power sector person. I am not really a transportation expert. Um, and what, you know, the, what the most interesting takeaway, um, for me in this analysis, uh, in kind of jumpstarting, um, electrification of the transportation sector is actually that we need to begin moving a lot faster on the power sector. Mm -hmm. Um, and what that means to me is we need to be building a lot more wind, solar, and storage, which is something we're really, really capable of and something that, um, you know, the, the United States has proven quite, quite good at. Um, so my sort of, my sort of counterintuitive, um, top takeaway from a transportation electrification report is, uh, to start moving a lot, a lot quicker on clean energy. Great. And that also, by the way, creates jobs. So, hey, no reason not to. Uh, Nikit, what about you? What's your, what's your top takeaway for our listeners? (laughs) Do you steal yours? Taylor sometimes (laughs) so well, so well. So uh, it's uh, I would just add two minor additions to it. One is we are at a historic time where taking any environmental action does not mean sacrificing economic welfare. In fact, it creates additional economic welfare just given the state of the technology and where things are headed. That's that's one of the top takeaways for me. And second. Uh, this infrastructure build-out, solar wind build-out, electric vehicle deployment is all challenging, but not internationally unprecedented. And we have done similar challenging things before, and we have achieved it, and we have overcome those challenges. So we just have to charge ahead, (laughs) pun intended. (laughs) All of this is not going to happen without a very strong policy and regulatory support. Uh, And that is absolutely at the front and center of any clean energy transition. Well, here, here to that. And that is an excellent segue to remind folks to join me next month for the second part in the series where we will do a deeper dive on the policies and regulatory actions and other steps needed to accelerate the transition to clean electric vehicles. And before I sign off, I really want to thank you both so much. It's been a pleasure to have the conversation and uh, kind of get out of report writing mode and into reflection mode. So thanks for your time today. Thanks for having us, Sarah. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it, Sarah. And before I sign off again, I'll remind listeners that Energy Innovation is a community partner for Verge Electrify, which is a free online event taking place May 25th and 26th. And the link to register will be on our podcast page and the notes. And uh, I will also include links to the reports we discussed today and the guest bios. Electrify This is an Energy Innovation original podcast. Energy Innovation is a nonpartisan climate policy firm. Our mission is to accelerate clean energy by promoting the most effective energy policies. We provide research and analysis for decision makers on what matters and what works to accelerate the transition to a low-carbon future. You can find more information about Energy Innovation and the podcast at energyinnovation.org forward slash electrify this. Please continue to subscribe, follow, and give us a review and tell your friends and tag us on social with hashtag electrify this. Uh, as always, I'd like to give a shout out to our sound engineer, Rowan Stigner, and the audio in in Salt Lake City. And with that, I will say goodbye. And until next month, I'm your host, Sarah Baldwin, and you're plugged in to electrify this. Thank you.